Well, good morning. I hope that you all are ready to dive into the word of the living God this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 30. And uh, if you have one of those Genesis journals, uh, I think it's on page 134. If you do not have a copy of God's word and would like to follow along, we're happy to give you a copy of those Genesis journals. If you just slip a hand in the air and uh, somebody will get you one. So we are continuing in our Genesis series, and uh, previously God had appeared to Jacob at Bethel and extended his covenant promises to him. So you remember that God uh, set apart Abraham and called him to be a nation to himself, a people for his own possession, and he promised that he would bless him and that he would make him a great nation, and that through him and his coming offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see God extending his covenant relationship with his son Isaac, and then with his son Jacob. Jacob um, has had a checkered past already. He has worked his brother out of his birthright, and then out of his blessing, and then fleeing from his brother, he went to his mother's household to go find a wife for himself. Uh, last week, Jacob reaped what he sowed in good measure in that he was laboring for uh, Rachel, and his father-in-law deceived him. And when he woke up after his wedding night, he realized that he had been betrothed to Rachel's sister, Leah. And so things got complicated in his house very quickly, right? So he ends up marrying Leah and Rachel and ends up having to labor uh, an additional seven years for both of them. And so today we are looking at Genesis chapter 30. uh, And I've titled this message, The Relentless Redemptive Grace of Our Promise-Keeping God. It's a mouthful. The relentless grace, relentless redemptive grace of our promise keeping God. I want to dive into an intro to this chapter, but before we do, this we're going to be covering the whole chapter. So instead of reading it all up front, I'm going to read it as we go along. So let's pray and ask God uh, for the for the miracle of our hearts being open to what He has for us today. Father, Lord, I pray that your grace would abound to the chief of sinners. That's all we have to bring to the table in this room. A people in need of redemption, a people in need of grace. And we are born wanting to earn it, wanting to strive it, or wanting to shun it. But we desperately need your mercy. And so I pray that you would magnify your own goodness this morning and that your people would marvel and receive all your grace that you purchased for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, What we're going to see first in this story is that God's redemption shines on a black backdrop. Redemption on a black backdrop. And What I want you to see in this text and know to be true from God's word is that this is always the only thing that God has to work with. God is always creating 
what, what theologians or scientists would call ex nihilo. It's, it's always out of nothing. What he has to work with from all of his creation is nothing or after the fall of man, the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity. He's, there's, there's nowhere in the world that he could go and find a people who are good enough f- to become his people or to earn his grace and his kindness. And this book is not a collection of exemplary stories so that you can improve upon the morals of your life. This is not God's guidebook for your life so that you can learn how to be a better person. This is not what the Bible primarily is. The Bible is not even primarily about you. Jesus did not come to make good people better or even bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The Bible, from front to back, is a story of redemption. It's a story of God creating the world in his goodness and in his kindness and mankind, whom he created for his own pleasure, rejecting him and rejecting the worship of God and falling away from God and us living at a distance from God, always striving to get back into his relationship or running from him in our guilt. And God moves heaven and earth in the person of Jesus Christ to win us back to himself. And he did so so that we could live forever with him as a people for his own possession, with everything restored and made new in a regenerated new earth and a new creation. So many times the Bible and the, the stories in the Bible don't showcase that whole cycle of redemption. It doesn't always have a redemptive quality to it. Sometimes you'll just get placed right into the story in a, in a story that exemplifies the depravity of man, how bad things actually are or have gotten. And it leaves you crying out. It showcases mankind's desperate need of rescue, and it leaves you crying out for the rescuer. And that's what we see in today's account. You're going to see that God does not choose his people because they are better than anyone else or because they're less depraved than the rest of the world around them. He, he sets his love on them because he loves them, because of his sovereign goodness and his choice of them, and that there is nothing that they could do to shake that or make him change the, his mind about setting his love on them. Now, the Lord's tying this in with Eric's call to worship because you can see how for those who are outside of Christ, every single person in all of creation has fallen away from the living God and deserves the righteous judgment of God. And there is a massive hinge where everything changes. And you go from deserving the righteous judgment of God and being guilty before a holy God to being declared righteous by God and experiencing all the same weight of his judgment, but in blessing and in his kindness. And that hinge is the grace of God. It has nothing to do with your striving. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to earn your way out of deserving his judgment into deserving his blessing. Only Christ deserves the blessing of God. And he came to redeem you out of your mess and of your sin and to bring you into the place where you experience what only he deserves. 
things could not be worse for those outside of Christ, and they could not be better for those in Christ. And the only difference is the grace of God. Now, grace is hard for us to grasp. We are born rejecting grace, rejecting help, rejecting mercy. We want to strive, we want to earn. You want, even now, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, you want to pay Jesus back for all of his kindness to you. And so what we're going to see is the depravity of God's people, even at the outset of him creating a people for himself and how even their sin from within and opposition from without could not undo or thwart God's purposes to bless them anyways because he loved them. So insert Genesis chapter 30. Now you'll remember Genesis 29 ended with Leah bearing children. She, God closed Rachel's womb, the one that Jacob loved, and he opened the womb of Leah, whom he loved less, the one who was part of this great deception. And no doubt Jacob carried some bitterness with him into that uh, second, or it's actually the first marriage. And so God, when he saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb and she has four children. She names the first three in relation to God has seen me and he's seen my longing because he knows my husband doesn't love me. And so she names him accordingly. And the second son, it's the same. And the third son, she says, now my husband will be attached to me. But even still, he wasn't. So on the fourth born, she named him Judah, saying, this time I will praise the Lord. And God was at work in her life and in her heart. But chapter 30 begins, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings or divine wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now, there's probably not Hebrew speakers in the room, but all of these names tie into what, what she's describing. So when she says, God has vindicated me, therefore I'll name him Dan, it's because Dan means vindication or judgment. And so with each of the names of the tribe of Israel, it has to do with where they are in the war for the husband's love and for their children. Now, at the heart of the war between Jacob's wives is them finding their identity and their meaning in what was not God. So all along, they are fighting for their husband's love and for this natural longing that God gave them for childbearing, but they longed for childbearing and children and the love of their husband more than they longed for the worship of God and for the timing of God. And so you see this battle among the sisters where they are fighting for Jacob's love and for who can 
win him and win this battle for finding meaning through childbearing. And even just in this first paragraph, you see uh, this massive envy of Rachel. Now, it's normal and a consistent theme in the scriptures for women to long to bear children. And the, the womb is described as unsatisfiable, that it's just this longing that can't be satisfied. But you can contrast Rachel's longing for a child and her vehemence against Jacob for not being able to give her a child or for her not having one with Hannah, who is in the same setup with being the second wife of her husband and being loved by her husband and being unable to bear children and the other wife giving her a hard time. But Hannah goes with weeping and fasting to the temple of the Lord and pleads before God day and night, waiting on him. Rachel, by contrast, is screaming at her husband because he can't give her a child, which completely uh, has a ceiling on her view. She's not bringing God into this at all. And so what does she do? So they're, they're, they're getting angry with each other. This is quite this different scene from the chapter before where they're, all his working for her seemed like but a couple of days because he loved her so much. And now the honeymoon's over and they're fighting like cats and dogs because he can't give her a baby. You see, in addition to her anger and her envy, this God-belittling self-reliance, right? God is sovereign over the womb. We saw that last week. But instead of waiting on the Lord in his timing and trusting him for his grace, she, he says, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She says, okay. And she works a detour around the will of God and around the timing of God to use her servant or her slave as a surrogate to produce for her a child for herself saying, I'll just use my slave as a surrogate and then adopt him. So she works around God to get what she wants anyways. And then she names the child Dan saying, God has heard me and has vindicated me. But anybody reading it knows this is not the vindication of God. This is not God hearing your cry. You went around God to get what you wanted anyways. And then you're calling it God hearing your cry and vindicating you. It was actually just the sheer mercy of God in spite of her. Now, I want you to think about the mercy and the kindness of God in this moment and get rid of forever this ludicrous idea that the God of the Old Testament is somehow this vengeful, wrathful God and Jesus came to make him nice. God, Rachel deserves to die in this moment. She is belittling God. She's working her will around God instead of God, and then she's calling her will God's will. And what does God do? He, he, he blesses it and gives her a baby anyways through her servant. Now, it's no wonder that Jacob's wives are acting the way that they're acting and coming up with these workarounds around the will of God because this is who Jacob has been from day one. God had promised that he would bless Jacob from before he was born. He knew the promises and all the while, he's seeking to achieve the promises of God and the will of God by his own timing and his own will. And so it's no surprise that the ladies of his household are following his own deceptive ways. On top of all that, they're using, you see in this paragraph, Rachel using a slave, a servant, using her to achieve her own 
ends, and she says, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. But this is, it's strange language. It means by divine wrestling. So there's this element of, I've been wrestling with Leah and with God, and I've come out on top. It's been like these supernatural, mighty wrestlings and using a strategy that Sarah had used in Genesis chapter 16 with Hagar. She uh, calls her husband to go into a slave so that she could adopt a baby through her because she couldn't conceive on her own. And we know that that has been a symbol throughout the scriptures of doing in the flesh and accomplishing by your own strength what you refuse for God to accomplish by his spirit through you. Ishmael is always a picture of what you could produce in the flesh, what you could produce by your own strength. And so here you have the exact same thing. On top of that, they have a low view of God, a low view of his sovereignty, a low view of marriage and sexual holiness. And so you have, I told my mom, she said, please tell them this, and I probably wouldn't beforehand, but because I think you guys might, might think that I secretly enjoyed this show. But she said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, the royal family meets Jerry Springer. Because this is what is happening. This is a bad setup. You have one man, now here, listen to this, with two wives, sister wives, and now two slaves that are getting brought into the marriage bed. So now you've got one man and four women and all these kids breaking out and the women are fighting with each other. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. So Leah's thinking, Rachel's not the only one who can use a slave as a surrogate. Two can play that game. So here's, here's my slave, and we'll start having children that way. Now listen to this, in case you think this is as messed up as it gets. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, who's the oldest, went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So this is shocking. Jacob's pretty much, you can tell, exclusively loving Rachel, staying with Rachel, and goes with his other women by necessity for childbearing purposes. So there's these mandrakes. Now, these mandrakes, um, the, the name of a mandragora autumnalis. It's a perennial Mediterranean plant. In ancient times, mandrakes were famed for arousing sexual desire and for helping barren women to conceive. So listen to this. Reuben goes out and finds this plant. Reuben's the eldest son of Leah. Rachel sees aphrodisiac and fertility drugs. She says, please let me have some of those. Leah says, he stays with you every night. It's like, it's going to cost you. She's like, fine, fine, fine. You can sleep with him tonight in exchange for the fertility drug. This is messed up. When Jacob came in from the field, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah. Remember what we said, what this whole situation deserves is the judgment of God. 
But here's the kindness of God. He listens to Leah, who just hired her husband with fertility drugs. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. So this is twisted. You have one sister hiring her own husband by paying her sister an aphrodisiac infertility drugs. You still have them striving and conniving to get what they want and to achieve what they want by their own means. And then you see Leah's wrong view of God. She is working on a sort of quid pro quo basis with God where I, I did this righteous thing or this thing of giving my servant to my husband. And so now God's heard me and given me my wages. He, he's given me what I deserve for doing this thing. And so now he's paid me fee for service. And yet God still graciously, condescendingly with generous, lavish grace blesses them. Leah conceives again and she bores, bears Jacob a sixth son. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So this marks a turning point in the story. God remembers Rachel now. And it wasn't because, don't miss this, Rachel did not conceive because she had made the deal and had the mandrakes and did the fertility drugs. And that's, this is three or four or five years later from that moment. And God remembers her and listens to her and shows her kindness sheerly as an act of his grace and of his mercy. And now that Rachel has conceived, the focus will be on returning to the land of promise. God has done what he promised in providing offspring. And now he, Jacob's focus and his eyes are on returning to the land that God had promised to give him and to his family. But don't miss this from this scene. The decisive factor in the creation of the family that would become the children of Israel. This is the origin story of the people of God. This is how this family gets started. All these names of the tribes of Israel, when you hear them from now on, you think back to this war between the sisters because all their names were derived from, now my husband will love me. Now God's seen me. Maybe my husband will be attached to me now. Good fortunes come to me. Hey, other women are going to call me happy. And this is, this is where their names come from. The decisive factor in the creation of this family was not the scheming and the striving of Jacob's wives. It was God who his gracious purposes towards his covenant people could not be thwarted by their sinfulness, by their own striving, not by the passivity and cowardice of a husband who went along with all of it. His purposes would prevail because he had promised them. He had made a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring, and the sin of his people could not undo the promises of God and the mercy of God. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. But I don't want you to miss this. This is the origin story of the 12 tribes of Israel, the, found, the foundation for the people of God. And in a real sense, 
Israel was in like a baby or a toddler form. God describes this in Ezekiel 16. He says, when I found you, you were like a a baby wallowing in your blood. And I said, live. And I brought you in and I nurtured you and you grew. And so truly we can say as individuals and they could say as a nation, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's true for you. And it's true for the nation of Israel. All God has to work with are people who are born dead in sin. People who put that sin on display and who deserve the judgment of God. And yet this was Jesus's family according to the flesh. This, this, so you think your family has some dysfunction and some things that are messed up about it. This is the family that Jesus came to. This was the line that the Christ would come from and it was the family that by faith, our faith is attributed back to the, the family that would blossom into the family of God and become the church of Jesus Christ. And God would work and will work to make her glorious without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And he will present us before the presence of his glory with great joy without any trace of sin. It's these same names of these same 12 brothers that are inscribed on the gates of the new Jerusalem as the, the names, the identity of the people of God. But God's glory is seen in producing his bride from these ashes of her sin and beautifying her with his own righteousness. It's redemption coming on a black backdrop. God is seen to be glorious, not just because he finds the best and the most qualified, but because he finds those who are dead in their sin and completely filthy and unworthy and could not be cleaned by any other way. And he showcases his goodness and his righteousness in taking them from the ashes and beautifying them with his own righteousness. The blood is shown to be more powerful when he takes an evil and a wickedness that is unfathomable and he takes it and redeems it and cleanses it and makes it perfect and holy. This is the power of his blood. And so I want you to listen to this. The brokenness of your life, the brokenness of your family, your past, they are not too big for God or the blood of his son. You're not too much for God to handle. You haven't gone too far for his redemption. Jesus said he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Is that good news for anybody in the room? He came not to call the righteous to himself, but sinners. And he came to redeem us by his blood and to make us a part of his covenant people where he would set his sight on you and determine to do you good, a good that you could not undo by your own unrighteousness, if you come to Jesus by faith. Your weakness, your brokenness, your sin, they are a canvas for his grace, an opportunity for him to display his strength and the power of his redemption so that his restorative power could be put on display. And so he bids you, come to me. Now listen to this too. He does not allow you to find will look at a man in his face and say, do you want to be healed? You have done or what 
He says, neither do I. He says, neither do I. No, 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 listen. Not because she didn't deserve condemnation, but because he would take her condemnation for her at the cross. And so he says, neither do I. Now go and sin no more. So this is the powerful, what these story of these ladies, what this woman in John chapter 8, what their stories tell us is that there is no sin that Jesus' redemptive power is not greater still, but don't let this, these sins define you or be the source of your identity when Jesus power is strong enough, big enough. Not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came not to a family that had it all together, but into this kind of family. Prevail. We pick up a verse 25. God's word says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban. Is that fair to say that when God makes these promises to Bethel, I don't think Jacob had in mind f- going to find one wife and ending up. And the game's up. Laban didn't come to him at the end of the time and say, hey, you're free. You can go. He's, he had to come to Laban and say, it's time for me to go. We're going back to the land of promise. And I'm going to take my wives and what your 14 years have been for. And now if you want to take anything else with Jacob's friend, you're going to have to wait. Later we see, name the deal. Right? This is, Laban is sneaky, tricky. Vindicating Jacob because of how how Laban has been, how your livestock has been, not Laban being charitable. Right? You have to read it for what's really happening. So Jacob says to Laban, you yourself, Your, your livestock is teeming. And this word teeming is only mentioned when God's promise to Jacob in Genesis 28. He said that Jacob's because of God. And so uh, Laban says, what shall I give you? Verse 31. Jacob says, don't give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. I don't, want, I don't want charity. He does not trust Laban. And just like Abraham refused to take a gift from the king of Sodom, he does not want the blessing of God to be attributable to a man. And so he says, I don't want anything. I'll work for you again. But here's the deal. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages 
Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. So, normally, if somebody was serving as a slave, when they come to the end of their term, 20% 20% of the flock would be normal wages for them to serve seven years as a shepherd and then they leave with 20% of the flock. But most sheep are white. Most, but most sheep are white. Most goats, black, are uh, Jacob is giving Laban a steal. He's saying, I'll work for you. Uh, but instead of 20%, I just want you to give me the striped and the spotted ones. Laban's like, <laughs> this guy doesn't know anything about shepherding. Deal. Now, Laban continues his sort of slithery deception. Verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So right off the bat, He's like, hey, just let me have striped and spotted. has to work with are pure white and pure black, and good luck finding striped and spotted from among them. Uh, strange account, and there's a lot of commentary uh, about what actually happened, which means nobody 100% knows. Um, so look at verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they had bread when they came to drink, the flocks bred speckled and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped Them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he would not lay, but for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Verse 43. Servants and camels and donkeys. Now, this is strange, right? Strange. Strange breeding practices among his family and now strange breeding practices among the flock. ...of what happened. There's some people say, oh, there's chemicals and these specific kind of... ...able to put them out when the strong were breeding, but that's not really how the passage reads, right? It reads like when the goats or the sheep see the mixed colors, then they would produce mixed... ancient superstition that was just that, that, that whatever uh, these goats or sheep were looking at when um, they were mating, that would affect the outcome of their offspring. And so Jacob was acting in keeping with some sort of ancient superstition. Um, but in chapter 31, uh, when Jacob is preparing to leave towards back to the land of Israel, uh, he calls Rachel and Leah into the field 
where his flock was, and he says to them, I see your father does not regard me with favor as he does b- did before, but the God of my father has been with me. So this is a neat uh, eight verses because he's giving commentary on the previous chapter and helps us to understand this. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me and changed my made this deal. Laban keeps changing the deal. But God, but God did not permit him to harm me. If spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats had made it with the flock were, uh, that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God came to me in a dream. Jacob, I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that make all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now, so third option and most plausible is that God appeared to him in a dream. And we do know is that regardless of what Jacob was doing with the sticks, but he could have been, uh, had this dream or this vision from God and was employing in Jacob fashion a little ancient superstition to kind of um, sweeten the deal and kind of provide some insurance in case God needed a little bit of help because that's kind of Jacob's thing, right? He, he gets a promise from God and he wants to help God out, stealing a birthright, stealing a blessing. Now ancient superstition like, God, I hear you that all these are going to be striped and spotted, but here's some striped and spotted sticks just in case so that we can just make sure that this happens. Or... It could have been a token of faith. Like, God, I believe you. And I believe that this is what you're going to do. And so uh, I'm going to put these here as a sign that I'm believing you that uh, these goats are going to turn into something striped and spotted. But don't miss this. If, if all the flock started producing spotted uh, because they had made the deal that he would take all the spotted, then these would belong to Jacob. And Jacob was making sure that they were the strong ones. If Laban changed the deal on him, regardless of what Jacob was doing with sticks or anything else, God sovereignly changed the kind of offspring that the goats and the sheep were having so that they would match the new deal. Because God was acting to bless Jacob and to vindicate him and to judge rightly between him and Laban. And so God in his promise-keeping goodness was working in something as small as the the mating practices of these flocks and the offspring that they bore to bless Jacob and to keep his promise to bless him and make him a blessing. And so the biggest takeaway from today I'm saying is to look to the God of redemption as you wait on him. You may find yourself at a place in your story that is not at the place of breakthrough. It's at the place of laboring and toil and waiting on God and your story working out differently than how you imagined God would have written it when he made the promise to you at first, when he first appeared to you in Christ. But in both of these instances, whether it's 
Jacob's offspring, through the crazy competition of his wives, or through this wild deal with Laban and this weird mating practices with the goats and the sheep. In both instances, God creates something from nothing. And he creates beauty in the place of ashes. And he gives Jacob a blessing that could be attributed only to God. His purpose to bless his people prevailed and could not be thwarted either by their own sin or by opposition from without. And that remains true for people who are in Christ. His purposes to bless you cannot be thwarted by your sinfulness or by opposition from those without if you are in Christ by faith because your righteousness is in heaven. It's another. Now, can you experience the consequences of God as a child of God because you're walking in sin? Can you experience the removal of the hand of God and the anointing of God? Absolutely. That's what we talked about last week. God will discipline his people. But you cannot change the love of God and his purposes to bless you and ultimately redeem you and restore you in Jesus because it is of God you are in Christ Jesus. It's by his grace through faith that you've been saved. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And God will set the stage in your life for his redemption and deliverance. I want you to miss this. God is the one who sets the stage. He's the one who created this timeline and this black backdrop that he was working from so that when he redeems the people of God from these depraved beginnings, he is shown to be all the more power to save and to redeem and to make righteous and to make new. I think about Jesus, the one who controls the wind and the waves. You remember after he calms the wind and the waves with a word, they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But the wind and the waves were obeying him before when, when it was stormy and the boat was rocking too. The same God who calmed the storm with the word actually produced the storm so that when he calmed the storm with the word, it would be clear to everybody else in the boat that God was in the boat. And so in the midst of the storms of your life, know that he is at work and he is able to rescue. And we have to learn from Jacob and his wives not to create a workaround to the plan of God, not to labor in our own strength to produce God's will in our own strength or in our own timing, but to rest in him and in his timing and to know that what others mean for evil in your life, God will work for good. What, what seems like this insurmountable obstacle to you is a canvas for the display of the power of God at work in and through your life. So wait on the Lord. If I could have one takeaway from all of this is that God keeps his promises and you can trust him. You can wait on him. This is all, this whole story of Jacob and his family is one gigantic promise from a promise-keeping faithful God and a people who are learning to trust him and who are failing in it and are trying to achieve the blessing of God through wages. Over and over again in these chapters, you see this, God, this time God has given me my wages or Jacob's doing his wages for Laban. It's all based on earning it or striving after it or achieving the blessing of God in their own strength. And so 
my exhortation to us today is to wait on the Lord and cultivate trust in him. So that looks like number one, as Paul writes to the Galatians, having begun by the spirit, don't seek to be perfected by the flesh. This is so massive for us. Every single Christian is so prone to a performance-based relationship with God where you feel confident in your relationship with God and confident to draw near to the throne of grace and confident to seek God as long as you have been performing spiritually. And the second that you fail before God, you are prone to stay out in a far country and to abstain from his mercy and to not draw near to him because you think that your acceptance with God is based on you and your performance. But God accepts you in Christ because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of your own. And so he says, when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence for mercy and help in time of need. Because he knows what it's like to go through your exact same life, but he did the whole thing without sin, and he is your substitute. He has made a way, a new and living way, by his own life and his own righteousness for you to draw near to God. And he says, look, if that's how you came to Christ, by grace through faith, and it was a gift of God, then know that him producing Christ in you, him making you holy and making you Christ-like, is going to come by the same means. Not by your laboring and striving in your own flesh but by surrendering and yielding to his spirit and abiding in him and trusting in his promises and watching him by his spirit and by his word produce in you that which is pleasing in his sight producing in you a lasting obedience because it's not derived from your own strength and your own righteousness but his and that's the biggest uh and we talk about waiting on the lord is to rest in jesus's righteousness he is enough Come empty-handed to the righteousness of Christ. I was listening to this song before the sermon. It's called Good and Gracious King by City of Light. And it's got these beautiful lyrics where he he talks about um, coming empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. All I have is the promise of acceptance by a good and gracious king. That's how we approach the throne of grace and the song talks about God is in need of nothing. He, he wants you to bring your neediness to the Savior because he will save his people from their sins. I want to leave you with this Romans 4. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So this is the gospel, friends. If you approach God on the basis of your righteousness and your holiness, and you feel like, in general, you're a pretty good person and that God will accept you based on your goodness, you are approaching God and your relationship with God is based on your performance and your working. And God will treat you on that basis. But if he does that, he has to give you the wages that you actually do, which is death. But to the one that does not work, but instead approaches God on the basis of faith, then that faith, God counts to them as righteousness. He takes the righteousness of Christ because you said, God, I believe. 
and I know that I cannot save myself, and I know that I cannot approach you on my own merit, and I'm coming to you on the basis of what Jesus has done at the cross, the Bible says God takes the righteousness of Christ and he imputes it to your account, and that your faith is counted as righteousness. But I think this ties into Jacob's story really well. Listen to the rest of uh, part of Romans chapter 4. God promised to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world that depended on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, and Jacob was standing downstream of the promises of God and the goodness of God, and it was guaranteed to him because of a covenant that was made before he was ever born. So it was guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring by faith not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So you see how even Abraham's family, they had this relationship with God. It was on the basis of faith, not on their law keeping. And so you, you see that in, in all of his failings and his wife's failings, that they didn't fall out of relationship with God because the relationship was based on faith in God and in the coming offspring, not in their own righteousness. And it says, <clears throat> it was guaranteed to all of his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he, whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope against hope, he believed that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, told so shall your offspring be. Listen to this. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as death, good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the word it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Bible is saying, Abraham was counted righteous by faith in Jesus. And that was written so that you who believe on Jesus can know this promise stands for you. You can be counted righteous on the basis of faith in Jesus. And we can walk in the example of Abraham as we journey on in faith. We don't grow weary in unbelief, but strong through faith. Why? Because, we're, because of how strong we are, because of how righteous we are? No, because he who promised is faithful. And so we continue in Jesus the way that we started, by grace through faith alone. So if I could give you one exhortation today, it would be know that God's grace toward you in Jesus is relentless. It chases you down and binds you up and brings healing and restoration and you cannot outrun it. But he has bought you and redeemed you so that you would belong to him. So he looks at you just like the way that he forgives the lady caught in adultery. And he says, I forgive you. I heal you. Now follow me and live like a freed person. And so we don't have 
to have, I think we get caught up in this, where we have our spirituality and our Sundays and our, our Wednesdays and where we get reminded of these things and we know them to be true and then we kind of have the rest of our life that's more practical and our circumstances that are so hard and this feels like the real world. And you need to know Jesus came into the real world. He came into that family, into your family, into your life, and he is making you new. So don't live your life in your own strength or try to achieve the promises of God without him, but wait on him and get to know him by his word. Let this be your lifeline. Learn of his promises by his word. Learn of his promises. Learn of him through the lives of faithful people that have gone before you. You, you read Christian biographies. Like here's one called Five Who Changed the World by Danny Aiken that comes strongly recommended from David Townsend. This is the one, right? Okay, he added to it. There's five more. So now there's one called Ten Who Changed the World. Um, to Die is Game, but John and Betty Stam, who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel in a, a miraculous way, but showcase with their life that Jesus is worth all your life. Spent their life taking Jesus to an unreached people group who slaughtered them. And their, their family's response and their, and their lives are proof that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That he is worthy of our lives and our all. Or um, John Piper wrote uh, a collection. There's an example of these um, briefer biographies. You're not a big reader. You don't want to read a biography that's this big to start out. Here's three biographies in a book this size um, demonstrating the faithfulness of God and the glory of God through the lives of those who have gone before you so that you can read their stories and read stories like Jacob's that shock you when, when it goes in such an unexpected place or there's so much mirroring between your life and, your, and their life and you're blown away, but then you see how God brought them through and showcased his glory on the other side of it and worked everything for their good and for his glory and you learn to trust him. And so um, we will buy you any biography you want. You can, my library belongs to this church. You want to borrow a book, it is yours. But let let us be people who are cultivating a trust in our God who is relentlessly working his redemptive grace in your life. He is, and you can trust him as you wait on him for breakthrough. So let's, let's position ourselves to be learning of his faithfulness. Because of his past faithfulness, we can trust him for our present need and as we wait on him in the present. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I am so thankful this morning that you did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Lord, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies ungodly people. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. Lord, all you had to work with, with our lives, was us dead in our sin. We brought you nothing. And yet, God, because you're rich in mercy, because of the great grace that you have for us in Christ Jesus, made us alive together with Christ and raised us from the dead and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In the coming ages, you've promised to lavish us with your grace and your kindness, and we can't always see that now. 
the, the road in front of us, the road that we travel seems to wind and detour. And sometimes we lose sight of your promises and sight of your goodness. And I pray that as a church this morning, we would repent and come to your feet and say, God, we trust you. Thank you for having grace on a people like us. Pray that we would trust you for redemption in our present circumstances, that we would not allow our past or our present to loom larger than our God, but that we would trust you for your grace and that we would cultivate faith and faithfulness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.